Welcome to Bossy Pants and the Nerd. We're Mel and Kevin, and we're going to chat with you about our passions, what we've learned, and what we love. Also, we're married to each other, and you get to listen to us talk. You are welcome. Yeah, so we've been uh, enlightening and enlivening uh, crowds for a while now. Uh, Oh, man. People enjoy... Is that what we're doing? Listening to us banter, I guess. Um, But here we talk about what we love, what we've learned, what our passions are. And today we're going to talk about one of our one of our passions, which is liturgy. Mm, That's a weird word. What does that mean, Melanie? (laughs) Thank you, Kevin. (laughs) We are getting really good at our segues. That wasn't forced at all. Well, first, the word liturgy itself it it just means the work of the people. And if I want to be really broad, every single church has a liturgy. Um, most of the time when you hear the word liturgy, you think high church, like an Episcopal church or a Catholic church or an Anglican church. But really, no matter your church, you have a liturgy, you have a way of doing things, um, a structure of some Unless sort. nobody shows up to your church. If your church is really just a pastor standing up front talking to themselves, then you don't have liturgy. That's sad. Because there are no people. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I'm just picturing the number of churches that had to do that over pandemic with cameras on. Okay, hold up. I count online people. Okay. I'm just, just wanted to clarify. I know like a lot of people get all on their high horses and say online people don't count. I am not one of those. Online people absolutely count. Online people count. So how would you define liturgy? In the way that we're going to talk about it. Okay. Well, it like as a style, like liturgical worship, you want me to define yeah, that? Yeah. All right. Um, for me, liturgical worship is a focus of worship that has an intentional decision to have some sort of ritual that involves the people who are listening so that it's it's predictable and people can participate because they know what's coming. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I think the ritual and the people's participation mm-hmm. are two really good elements. Um, I think l- liturgy being the work of the people, for me, really roots it in the people's participation. So he- responding after scriptures out loud all together or singing i mean of course singing songs together that's really the one and only thing that all churches do not, well i shouldn't say all church not most. every not every church sings yeah most um, but for the do, most part every... no no matter how low church you are you you might sing songs but that's like the one participation mm-hmm. whereas in a liturgical service there's responses there's litanies of prayer um and and communion i think that's another it tends to be a marker of the style of liturgical because there's a higher view of communion and a desire to practice that as often as we can. Well, I mean, because the communion service, part of the service itself, like it makes sense that if you value people participating and knowing what's coming and you value the rituals of the church, you're going to look at communion and go, wow, that does all of the things I love. And you're going to, you're going to want to do that often Mm -hmm. in your gatherings. Um, I think the people who don't celebrate communion as often as I think they should, um, they're, we they're like, like to should people, <laughs> that, hence the, uh, sarcastic tone of voice. 
But like, yeah, I mean, I think that people who choose not to do that, they choose not to because they don't see the importance of the practice. They don't see the importance of the participation and doing that together. Right. Um, there's less of an emphasis, the less <laughs> emphasis you put on those concepts, the less you're going to value doing communion, like on a weekly basis. Right. Now, the the, the response to a liturgical practice or communion every week is that it is, it's so expected. It is so uh, repetitive and uh, anticipated that there's nothing new. And why would I even bother going to church? And why, like, the perspective, the perspective of, I think, many who do not have a high view of liturgy is also that it's their job to give the people new information and a new experience. See, the funny thing is you used the word new twice in that sentence, and yes. that is exactly what was in my head. Yeah. If your, <clears throat> if your attractiveness is reliant on being new or novel or innovative, um, you're going to get in trouble as a church leader. You you can't be new to everyone at all times. Like you the can't... church police comes after you and they're like, ah, you've tried to be new. No, like <laughs> you just, you're going to fail at being mm, new. Okay. You If your value is that I'm going to present something to you you've never thought of before, like you're going to, you're going to be like, if I were going to start wearing skinny jeans because I want to be trendy and relevant, it would it would be terrible. Like that's an awful decision because it would be my attempt to become something that's unnatural. Mm -hmm. Our relationship with God is not new and novel and oh my gosh, it's this totally new thing that no one has ever thought of before. Like that's it's true. it's a very traditional thing. People have been doing this for thousands it's of years. Ancient. I think and I don't want to talk about why we would disagree with others but why we choose what we believe to be foundational about liturgical cho choices and practices and one of the things you said um just the the being new i don't think being new or trying to do new things or being innovative is in itself wrong i think on one hand it could it can be harmful for the person because it's exhausting you're always behind you're always trying to be on top of something that the, a, a wheel that's never going to stop turning mm -hmm. like there's always going to be a crunch for new information and innovation and and that's just a lot of pressure on a person i i think most people wouldn't say well that's a good enough reason to become liturgical but it is for it is a reason why i think it can be harmful um but yeah i think there is there's value in being a part of something that is beyond yourself, beyond your own community. Because on any given Sunday, you know that you are praying prayers or reading scriptures or partaking in the Lord's Supper that has that is being done in every different time zone across the centuries, but all the way back to Christ himself. And for me, why wouldn't I want to be a part of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like when I was preaching for a pretty regular basis for about a decade there. Um, even when I wasn't telling people that that's what I was doing, I was always preaching from the lectionary, which mm -hmm. is different from liturgy, even though they both start with L and they're both words that most people don't know. Right. Um, the lectionary being, it's this selection of readings from the Bible that lots of churches all across the world all read 
on the same Sunday. Mm -hmm. It's it's literally like a schedule of readings. Now, the Revised Common Lectionary, I was surprised to find, isn't actually that old. No, I'm not saying it's old. I'm right. saying it's widespread. Right. right. Or, or the practice of reading the same thing across all churches. It, it is an old practice. Yeah. The Revised Common Lectionary is obviously yeah, devised. Yeah, I don't, I don't so care about any particular lectionary. That's fine. Yeah. But like the idea that I didn't have to wake up on a Monday morning and go, oh man, I just preached a sermon. What do I want to say next week? Mm -hmm. You know, I could wake up on Monday morning and go, oh, church is over. Cool. What are we reading next week? And I could open up the lectionary. I could open up my Bible and go, oh, that's what we're reading as a church. Well, that's why you have sermon series. So you can plan out your sermon series in four or five or seven or ten week chunks and then not have to wake up on Monday morning and wonder what you're going to preach. Yeah. I, I think the one of the other huge benefits to lectionary and liturgy is that people can't get mad at you for preaching at them. You know, like there was one situation where somebody in the church had just shared with me um, some marital concerns and like they were fighting with their spouse and they're just like, I, I might just want to throw in the towel. And then the very next week, the lectionary reading had the passage from Mark about Jesus talking about divorce. And I was like, well, OK, here we go. You know, but they knew I didn't pick that reading for them. Yeah. I didn't say, well, let's just go bludgeon this person with the Bible this week. I'm going to do it from the pulpit because I'm bully Kevin. Mm -hmm. You know, like they knew, oh, man, like this has been on this calendar for like forever. This is just something that we talk about in the right. church. This is what happens. Well, you know? I, I think the beauty of it, too, is that following the lectionary allows scripture to speak for itself. And you, I, there may be some pastors who preach, and I often tried to preach and tie in at least two or three of the lectionary passages, but you don't have to when you're preaching. And so the congregation and, and the preacher is receiving the word of God from Psalm, an Old Testament, a New Testament passage, and a gospel every single Sunday. And I, I remember having someone reading the scripture it also allows for other people to participate. So you'd have four different readers, mm -hmm. just lay people involved every week, just automatically. And I remember one time someone was standing up reading from Romans and just started weeping in the middle of her passage because the word of God was moving in her. And I, we weren't even going to preach from that. Mm -mm. Um, and I think the, the danger in a sermon series is still that you are essentially proof texting like you're choosing you choose a sermon focus and i mean unless you're going straight through a, a, a book of the bible but and then you're choosing passages that fit that topic mm -hmm. whereas and, you know so then you only get this little chunk of scripture so you read two verses or ten verses or a chapter on a sunday morning right versus like here's four separate passages of scripture that speaks for itself well and i think too like because we started by talking about liturgy as the work of the people mm -hmm. right and so at some point i i feel like the submitting to a schedule like the lectionary mm -hmm. and saying hey i'm gonna i'm gonna preach on whatever the lectionary has to say and i'm just gonna say okay when i read the lectionary this week this is what god spoke to me and i'm gonna share that with you mm -hmm. it's a very different relationship between preacher and congregation mm -hmm. than a preacher who said hey, this is what I wanted to say this week. Mm -hmm. And I think God told me to say it. 
And so I picked a bunch of scripture that supports that. Right. That's just, it. it's a difference. Like there's a very pronounced difference there. It, and it takes it from being like a, we as a congregation, including the preacher, mm-hmm. are digesting and learning and listening together to, I've already done the digesting and learning and listening. Here's what you need to know. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so it's, it goes from being like a collaborative thing to being a directional thing mm-hmm. when you as a preacher pick all the passages and and, and make your point. Right. Um, and I, I don't like that change. Well, yeah. And the, as, as I hear you talking about that, one of the other things I'm remembering from the church that we pastored together was that we encouraged people to read along with the daily lectionary readings mm-hmm. in between Sundays and in the app, Daily Lectio, and in the printout that we made for those who weren't tech savvy, mm-hmm. they could see all of the passages that the pa- the, sp- the four passages we just read and the four passages we were going to read the next Sunday, mm-hmm. as well as all those in between. And it would have you read the same psalm you read out of the Sunday for three days, you read the same psalm you read on Sunday. And then mm-hmm. for the last three days, you read the new psalm. Mm-hmm. So you're preparing for worship on Sunday and you're connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. So when you show up to church, it's not, hey, I wonder what I'm going to get blindsided with this morning. Right. Like you already kind of know, like God's already had a chance to speak to you mm-hmm. through scripture. Right. And you get to come and say, oh my goodness, I am so excited to hear that reading this Sunday because mm-hmm. this is what God's been doing in my life throughout the week. So it's, it, as for the word high church, it makes me think of like classy or like upscale. But really, I'm almost thinking the the liturgical churches are actually a bit more potluckish, <laughs> where everybody brings something Potluck and every, preaching. everybody gets to participate versus like the high class uh, dinner that gets served to you. Right. Um, so let's back up a little bit and talk about what our own stories. Did we grow up did either of us grow up in liturgical high churches and or how did we come to this place? Yeah, I I personally am a sixth generation free Methodist. Okay. Like my great great grandpa was a Sunday school superintendent down yeah. in Ohio. Um, both sides of the family, actually. It's kind of weird that and way. And your great grandpa on the other side was a free superintendent in Indiana. Yeah, like it was. Your yeah. grandma was a. Women's so, ministry. Needless to say, I am no more liturgical than free Methodism is in general. Mm-hmm. This is something I came to, I think I was first really exposed to it in seminary because mm-hmm. we made a habit of our, like our devotionals at seminary. We would intentionally switch styles and invite people from different backgrounds and different traditions to lead the seminary chapel services. Mm, okay. You know, so like you would have a Pentecostal preacher you know, one week and then the next week you'd have a Catholic priest or deacon and the next week you'd have an Orthodox guy come in. And, and then Right. You know, like you'd have this wide range of people coming in. And I realized that there was just something incredibly attractive to me as somebody who is participating in the chapel service mm-hmm. when I had the opportunity to to speak back to do a responsive reading and be a part of like reading those bold words along with everyone, because there's something about your body participating and your voice participating that connects your brain and your soul in a way that your brain, your soul can't if your body's left out. Mm. 
So like being able to talk and being able to, you know, stand up or sit down at the right times or whatever it is, there's something about having a body that is actively involved that also actively engages your emotions, your spirit and your soul and mm. like your, your brain. Mm -hmm. It's it's all part of the same package. So I, I don't think I realized that, that it was really in your experience of uh, the more high church liturgical style of chapel yeah. that brought you to, around to it. Because you were free Methodist, which way, 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 way back in the 1800s was probably pretty liturgical. I mean, Wesley was Anglican, yeah. Right. Well, that was Wesley, but uh, so free Methodism. That was Methodism. I would say we probably got unliturgical before BT. I'd have to look into it, but. You think so? So, yeah, the Free Methodist Church is not Less in and of itself anyway. liturgical. Yeah. Um, there's freedom to be liturgical, but mm -hmm. not a, we are all, every single service is going to look different. Right. So, so I mean, I, I think, and just to drive the point home, for me, it wasn't about, as a pastor, I really like this. Mm. For me, it was realizing that it taught me and changed me in a way that simply watching or being a congregation participant in a usual non-liturgical, non-people participation oriented service did. So for me, it's pedagogical, meaning like it's a teaching method. Yeah. To have the participation of the people in the congregation means that they are more likely to engage their brains and their souls and their spirits and their emotions, and they're more likely to absorb it and to change and be changed by God hmm. if you have this participatory liturgical style. You know, I'm also thinking when you say pedagogy, the the teaching, I mean, there it, it can teach literacy to people who struggle with literacy it i think for many people think well liturgy is just for smart people or for educated people but i think it's almost the opposite because mm -hmm. my my three-year-old can sit in and take communion with us every week and a few months in she's got the lord's prayer memorized mm -hmm. or you know if we sing the same closing benediction song every week they have the song memorized mm -hmm. and and i think everybody like i think research even shows that m memory memory is important in our learning mm -hmm. and memory what we memorize and what we put in our minds and can call to reference during the week forms us as human beings yeah. and so the repetitive nature that many people would criticize as just boring mm -hmm. actually is formational in and of itself yeah well, i mean and it's why i mean and the science is there too because people who are in marketing um they have no reason to do anything except it when it makes them money mm -hmm. so their goal is i need to make sure you remember my product and think of it nicely yeah so, so they come up with jingles, jingles and yeah. they come up with you know fun little slogans. terms of praise and slogans mm -hmm. and repetitive phrases and right. that's their strategy to make sure that you get into your head that double mint gum is the best gum repetition ever, you know repetition. and so that's why liturgy it gets a bad rap for being repetitive, but when is the last time you heard something once and mastered it, mm -hmm. right? Like, let's not pretend like we're all living out the basics of the Christian life perfectly. <laughs> and That's we funny. need to learn advanced theology to be changed by God. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. Love your neighbor as yourself remains the most complicated, nuanced, deep, unmet expectation that God has for us, mm -hmm. you know? And so, 
finding the 50 billion different ways we can love our neighbor, mm -hmm. that's something you can spend your life on. So let's not minimize the value of reading that passage of scripture at least once or twice a year and yeah, meditating say, you on could what read it means that to love every our neighbor. Week and still it be formational for right. you. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, going back to, to my growing up, I did not grow up liturgical in any sense. Uh, as far from it as possible, probably, because I hadn't even heard of Advent. I think I might have heard of Advent, maybe. But mostly as just a, it's countdown to Christmas, like, uh, Lent was not something I was really aware of at all. And so I remember even coming, most Free Methodist churches at least acknowledge and often participate in those two seasons. Mm -hmm. They're kind of a an easy on-ramp. At least got an, an advent wreath or something. Yeah. We do the candle lighting. We do a candlelight. Yeah, yeah. As like a traditional shout out, but not because you're following the liturgical season so much. But so I didn't know any of that. And I was brought up in the same, you know, the low church view that the more often you take communion, the more repetitive and meaningless it becomes. And I remember, I mean, because for me, communion growing up was really about personal confession and not going forward until I had confessed everything that I had done that week or that month, however long it had been, um, which is a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we should get into communion um, itself in maybe a follow-up episode because mm. that's kind of its own thing. Or just sacraments in general. Sacraments. Let's yeah. talk about some baptism. Ooh, Let's talk about infant, infant baptism. baptism. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Didn't I do that sound in the last episode? Probably. It's very dramatic over here. So I was fairly unaware of anything liturgical until after we got married, I think, when, although I, I really had a taste of it when we were planning our wedding ceremony. Like that was me piecing together a service it was one of my favorite things and it still is shout out to all of our friends who literally just stole our wedding service and then used it like 15 times yeah. in the next few years yeah because i can't <laughs> this is like how i bake too i can't just take what's written and do it i have to see like what we've just been talking about <laughs> no but yeah even liturgically i i might i'll follow the the passages i follow the season but i'll take a prayer from the book of common prayer and i'll take a prayer from the revised common lectionary and i'll mm -hmm. take a prayer from uh, who you know, other authors or whatever, you know, I, I kind of piece things together based on what is suitable for that season in that congregation. Mm -hmm. um, so there is some flexibility. Well, and I, I think that's what most people don't understand is following a liturgical calendar in your church does not mean you never get to pray and you right. have to use only like the specific written prayer you're allowed to pray right like there's 50 billion written prayers out there or you can write your own right or you can pray extemporaneously like there's, I mean, there's space for all of our that. favorite thing about our services at our old church was the prayers of the people mm -hmm. and so i would open up the prayer time with an opening written prayer and then just stop talking and we would often have some sort of soft music going in the background or whatever sure but then just allow people to extemporaneously pray and then when they were finished, I would say, Lord, in your mercy. And we'd all hear respond, our hear our prayer. And to not respond after someone prays with hear our prayer, is it feels really, it's really hard for me. It feels very empty um, because that Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer, com it, it, it's compelling. It's uniting. It's community coming before God. Well, and if you're the one praying and then when you're yeah. done yeah. praying, 
everyone in the congregation says, hear our prayer yeah. to what you just said and right. your conversation with God. So we're owning your Like prayer. that is another way that you participate. Mm-hmm. And so each person individually can pray and mm-hmm. contribute, but then also there's that communal response that says, yes, we are doing this together. Mm-hmm. This is a community of faith. And even when we do things on our own, we don't do it totally alone. Right. And then years after we were married, I I was invited to a an evening vespers service is what what they called it, and it was just four or five other women who invited me to pray with them in basically a little prayer meeting, and it was unlike any prayer meeting I had ever been to. We followed the evening prayer service for the Church of England, which you can find online, Daily Prayer Church of England, and there's also an app. Mm-hmm. the daily prayer app there's an app for that there is and it's fantastic highly recommend um if church of england if you want to sponsor me you can <laughs> contact us at <laughs> sponsorships i don't know um, never mind yeah moving re- on. regardless <laughs> uh, moving on so it was the first time that i had prayed not well there was extemporaneous prayer but it was no one had to lead like we just took turns, we went around in a circle reading the scriptures, reading the prayers, reading the responses, and we just left silence and then prayed whenever, and then someone closed. And it was so good and so formational for me that I knew I never wanted to stop doing that. Um, and so getting to lead the Ash Wednesday service recently um, in a liturgical fashion and hearing mm-hmm. all of the voices without a leader up front responding Mm-hmm. hear our prayer or Lord have mercy on us or forgive us our sins was deeply formational for me, feeling like I was a part of a community. Mm-hmm. So I I think that um, th- those, I, I would say, are our reasons why liturgy is compelling. Um, the connections to the historic church, mm-hmm. like you said, the the formation of the whole person, body, mind, and spirit, mm-hmm. and the participation in a community. Mm-hmm. Um, so we love to talk liturgy. We would welcome any questions or kind pushback. Um, <laughs> Kevin doesn't need kind pushback, but, yeah. but I could use that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, do you, do you have any other final thoughts before we sign off? No, I'm good. Okay. Well, I, I will close with one of my favorite sending songs. Oh, am I singing with you? No. I won't sing. I won't sing. I'll just say, may the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Or our podcast. Amen. Amen.